Wow. You guys are like a Southern Baptist church out here. Holy cow. Howdy, y'all. Well, my name is Mike Bontempo. And uh, last time I got up here and spoke, um, I showed you a picture of my dog, Maverick. Well, I love Maverick, but I really like my family a little bit better. So I'm going to show you a picture of my family. Uh, up behind me is my uh, beautiful wife of 37 years, Kim. Uh, my three daughters. Yeah. Uh, my three daughters, uh, beautiful daughters, uh, um, Bryn, Abby, and Hannah. And good thing they look like my wife. Uh, my uh, step, my uh, son-in-law and my future son-in-law, Jackson and Deshaun. And then my new favorite buddy, my nine-month-old grandson, Kendricks. Yeah. So today, um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Yeah, that wasn't me, but I praise God that I never had a house that had a garage, so because that would have been me. See, that obviously the door didn't open wide enough uh, to let that big car in. So today, I don't know what brings you here. Whether or not you were invited by some friends, uh, maybe your husband or, or wife told you they had to be here, or your parents told you you had to be here. Um, maybe you were on your way to the beach, and because it was so cloudy out, you said, ah, let's go to church instead. Um, or maybe you're here because you want to worship and, and understand the Lord, uh, Lord better. Whatever the case is, um, let's do this. Let's take this opportunity to open our hearts really wide to get to know God a little bit better. Today we're going to talk about Psalm 24. If you'd open your Bibles up to Psalm 24, I'd like to read it together. Um, if you're like me, take out your phone, open up your Bible app, um, and let's, let's turn to Psalm 24. But today I want to do something a little bit different than what we normally do. Instead of just me reading it and you following along, I want to read it together as a family. I think it's important that we, we talk about it out loud and that we actively, actively speak it. So let's start with Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your head, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is King of glory. Thank you. Well, we know that this psalm was written by David, but we don't know on what occasion that he wrote it. Many scholars believe that David wrote this when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem the first time. I'm sorry, the second time. 
You see, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't like Noah's Ark. It was this wooden box that was gold-plated that signified God's presence in Israel's midst. The Ark had been taken by the Philistines in a battle that Israel probably shouldn't have gone into. You see, they went into battle but didn't ask God's guidance before they went in. So they got routed and the Philistines took the ark. Subsequently, David fought another battle and retrieved the ark. But he didn't prepare his people to transport it back to Jerusalem. You see, God had given them specific instructions on how to transport the ark that honored God. A specific family of priests was to carry it. They were to carry it on their shoulders and no one was to touch it or they would die. Well, when they tried to bring the ark back the first time, it started to tip over and a gentleman who was transporting the ark reached out to make, it, to make sure that it didn't fall over and touched it. And we read in 2 Samuel that Uzzah, was killed instantly on the spot because he touched the ark with unclean hands. Uzzah's death shook David pretty badly. And I can imagine that before anyone else got hurt, he just left it where it was, which was at Obed-Edom's house. Well, a couple of months later, David heard that Obed-Edom was being blessed beyond imagination through God's presence. So David attempted to go back and give it another go and bring the ark back to Jerusalem. I have to imagine that David didn't want to the same thing to happen, so he wrote this psalm to prepare Israel for God's presence to enter into their midst. As we'll see from the psalm, David is very clear that God desires to have a personal relationship with us. We just have to open our hearts and let him in. Let's pray. Jesus, please, um, as I bring this word today, that if there's anything that is of me, that you would eliminate it. That God, you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would bring your word so that you would impact everyone who has come in today individually. That you would talk to them and that they would know you as a person who really wants to be with them individually. And I ask this in your presence saying, amen. Well, David first starts to try to get his people ready for God's presence by giving them a perspective of how big God is. In verses one and two, he says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. You know, trying to describe God is a pretty tough task. Our minds can't get in context of who God is because he's so much greater than what we can see or we can feel. David was always trying to help the Israelites get a perspective on how God is by using the physical things that we could see. In 1 Chronicles 29:11, he says this, for everything in the heavens and on the earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. 
Moses tries to describe God very similarly in Psalm 90. He says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. I don't think I could adequately describe God at all. So let's take a look at some things that God created with his hands. The mountains. The seas. That's for you surfers out there. The earth. And the galaxy. What David communicates in his poetry we can start to understand through some of the science that we have today. Let's take a look at the sun, for example. The sun is massive. It's 330,000 times greater than the earth. That would mean about a million earths could fit in it. The temperature on the surface of the sun is about 10,000 degrees, and scientists believe that the core is about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Every second, the sun creates the same amount of energy that one million, one megaton bombs would create if they all went off together at the same time. In addition, one second of energy that the sun creates could power human civilization for one million years. Yeah, one second powers human civilization for one million years. Yet the sun is only one medium star in, this, in, a, in a universe filled with trillions of stars. Scientists estimate that between, there are between 100 and 400 billion stars in our galaxy. Some research coming from the Hubble telescope suggests that there are probably a, another one trillion galaxies out there. So that means there are about 200 billion trillion stars. And the sun is only one medium-sized star in the whole galaxy. Now use that for BBS, huh? Does that give you a handle on how, God big, how big God is? But in the same verse that David just, we, wrote, we read from David, David moves from the earth and everything in it to the world and all who live in it. That all is you and I. It's totally inclusive. All means everyone. David wants his people to understand that even though God created all this universe, he wants to dwell with us personally. Let me repeat this. The God who created that massive universe wants to dwell with you and I personally. 
God also expresses that same desire to be personal with us through his son, Jesus. I was recently reading through Mark and in my, in my devotions, and it became apparent that when Jesus started his ministry, he became pretty popular. He always had a crowd around him, and he was a really busy guy. And Mark, um, he, he was always surrounded by this big crowd. But even though he had the responsibility for preaching and teaching to this big crowd, he was always stopping to spend time with the individual. In Mark 5, there are two examples of this. Jesus had just arrived on a boat and immediately stepped onto the, uh, onto the sand and a huge crowd came around him. As he was there, and this crowd came around him, a prominent synagogue leader came rushing up to him, fell at his feet and begged him to save his daughter who was dying. With all those people around him, Jesus had pity on this one man and immediately said to him, get up, let's go. As they started off for the synagogue leader's house, a large crowd started pressing in on him. And just think about it. He's, maybe there's a hundred, maybe thousands of people that are, are surrounding him, and he's trying to make his way through the crowd. When a woman comes up to him and touches the hem of his robe, See, this woman had this medical condition, and she thought that as long as she could just touch the hem of his robe, she could be healed. So as this crowd is pressing around him and she touches him, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Just think of this. He was surrounded by this huge crowd, but stops and wants to know who this person was that had great faith. Well, the lady comes up to Jesus and, scared out of her wits, humbles herself before him and, said, and tells him exactly the whole truth of what she did. Well, Jesus' response was, he picks her up and he commends her for her faith. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed from your affliction." Okay, I just want to stop here for a second. If you think that there's something that you've done recently that you're ashamed of and is pulling you away from Jesus, or maybe you think that you're not worthy to come into God's holy presence, I just want to tell you, all you have to do is stop. Come humbly before God. Tell him the truth of everything that just happened. And his reaction will be exactly the same that he had with this woman. He said, he will tell you, get up. I love you. Go in peace. You're healed from your affliction. So as this is going on, some people start running down from the synagogue's leader's house and tells the synagogue leader that your daughter has died. You're going to stop bothering Jesus. Overhearing them, Jesus, knowing how heartbroken this guy must have been, this father who has just lost his daughter, turns to him and says to him quietly, don't be afraid, just believe. 
Well, long story short, Jesus goes into the house, heals the girl, and brings her back to life. And these are just two stories that show how Jesus cares for us individually. He's not too big, he's not too busy to care for us to, as, as a person. He's always there for us. We just have to allow him in. Well, now that David has reminded us how big and glorious our God is, and that he wants to come and dwell with us and have a personal relationship with us, he turns his attention to us. In verse 3, David asks, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? Now, David already knows the answer. But he needs us to ask that same question of ourselves. Are we worthy? In verse 4, he goes on to answer that question and says that the person who is worthy needs clean hands and a pure heart. You need to, both, you need to have both actions and motives. But here's the problem. No one can achieve that. Our outward actions may be good, but our heart's pure. You know, when I was in the corporate world, we would uh, typically measure our leaders based upon what they did and how they did it. The what are things like uh, sales growth or profit margin or, hey, new product development. And those measurable things are like our actions. Those accomplishments are like our actions. The other thing that we would measure them on is how did they achieve those results? And that was the heart of how they did it. Did they build a good team? Uh, did they give them the tools that they need? Did they inspire and motivate them? Did they treat people with dignity and respect? You see, you can get the results two ways. You can either do it the way that I just explained, or you can run over people just like a bull in a china shop. And I have to tell you that all the companies that I worked for were very, very focused on achieving the results. However, they didn't want the results at the expense of their people or the culture. It's similar with Jesus. He's always looking beyond our actions to our motives. As a matter of fact, he was always challenging the religious leaders with this notion. In Mark, he also tells the religious leaders there are times when there was a, there were some Pharisees that came down and started questioning him and asking him about the law that, hey, can we divorce our wives? And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, you know the reason why Moses wrote that law? is because you had hard hearts. He got right in his face because he cared about the motives and the actions. You see, David knew this bar was impossible to hit. No one was worthy to climb Mount God. As a matter of fact, in two Psalms, he says outright, in Psalm 14, David says, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's anyone who understand. Is there any who seek God? All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And in Psalm 53, he says the exact same thing. 
In one of the most famous verses of the Bible, Romans 3.23, it says it very clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And all means everyone. I've sinned. You've sinned. Even Pastor Gary has sinned. Oh, good, he's not sitting here. Cool. <laughs> I was a little worried about that before. It's kind of like my car radio screen. In my car, I have this nice screen that I like to change the radio stations with. Whenever the commercials come on, I'm usually bopping between two, two radio stations, which bugs the heck out of my wife, by the way. So as I'm bopping through these two radio stations, I noticed that I had a fingerprint smudge on the screen. So I took out a little cloth and started to try to wipe it off. I thought I had gotten it, but when the sun hit it just right, I could see that fingerprint again. You see, we have this little thin film of grease on our hands. And no matter how hard we try to clean it off, when we touch something, it's going to leave a stain on it. So let's go back to the story of Leza. When the rock was about to fall over, his intentions were good, his heart was pure, but his actions were not. God said specifically, if anyone touches it, they would die. That's because God wanted to impress on his people how holy and glorious he is, that he didn't want them to think that they could touch him with their hands. Okay, now that I've bummed everybody out, there is hope. You may be thinking to yourself, this doesn't make sense. This God wants to have a relationship with us. But because of who we are, we can't have that relationship. What's the point? Well, let's go back to this car screen. To get the fit my fingerprint smudge off the screen, I can't just use any cleaner. I actually have to use a degreaser. I can try my hardest, but unless I use that degreaser, I can't get that stain off. Well, Jesus provides the degreaser for us. You see, we have this stain of sin that prevents us from entering God's holiness. And God knew this, but really desired a relationship with us and wanted to do whatever he could to get us together. So he sent Jesus down, died on the cross, and was rose again to degrease the stain of our sins. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. His blood gives us clean hands. Our small group recently went through Colossians and we read this verse. Colossians 3, 13 through 14 says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it, to the cross. We can now climb God's mountain because we get clean hearts and clean hands through Christ. 
David tells us that in verse 7. He says, They will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. It ties back to the Colossians verse. The blessing is that God made you alive in Christ. The vindication is that he forgave our sins, canceled our legal indebtedness, and nailed it to the cross. Now, this is a personal gift. David says, the one who has clean hands, they will receive the blessing. Just like in John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The verse from, goes from God loving the whole wide world to whoever believes the individual. Is this a gift you want? Do you want to have a personal relationship with the God who created and runs the universe? Well, Davis tells us how. He says, open up and let him in. Get to know who he is. Know him intimately. We have to actively respond. David was concerned that the Israelites weren't ready for the ark and God's presence to enter into their, into their midst. Just like today, I bet you the Israelites were pretty busy. I bet you they had jobs. They were trying to climb the corporate ladder, maybe to the CEO of a dove-selling company or maybe the head sheep herder or maybe even the head tax collector, whatever that may be. Or maybe they just were make, trying to make ends meet and that they had multiple jobs. I bet you their kids played soccer. You know, they were always running around from league to league. Or maybe they had a boat and they went out fishing. Whatever it is, I bet you the Israelites were pretty busy and they didn't have a lot of time for God. So David uses the imagery of the city gates. He says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. I get the, imp the impression that Israel was so focused on what they were doing that they weren't focused on God. David says, get your head out of the weeds. Open up your hearts wide. Get to know God. Just think about what we do when we want to build a relationship. What do you do? You spend time with the person. You talk with them. You hear about their stories. You live life together. And as you communicate and spend time with each other, your relationship grows deeper and deeper and deeper. Just like a marriage, it takes work and it takes effort. So how do we do that with God? Well, for the Christian who has accepted Jesus as their Savior, there are four things that I would recommend that you do. The first is seek him. The second is spend time with him. The third, do some self-examination. And lastly, sing to him. Let's talk about seek him. In most human relationships, the person is here physically so that we can go and get to know them better. But what if you wanted to know 
George Washington a little bit more intimately. Well, in my time, I'd open up the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's how old I am. Um, and I'd do some research. You know, today we've got uh, Google and Siri and Yahoo, and we could do all that research uh, through that. But you have to read and research. So if you want to get to know God better, the best place to go would be the Bible. God gave us this great letter that he wrote to describe himself. So spending time in his word, reading about who he is, understanding his attributes, and getting to know his heart will help you have the same view of God that David did. Let's talk about spending time with him. Spending time with God just means talking with him and listening to him. In Christianese, that's praying. Sometimes we make this too complicated. It's not rocket science. Just like when we talk to a good friend or talk to our spouse, we just have a conversation in which we share our innermost thoughts and feelings. Where you listen to God's spirit speak to you through his word. You know, Gary gave us some practical advice back in January. He handed out this, this form that you see behind me. And guess what's in it? Guess what it focuses on? Spending time with him and praying. In addition to communicating and praying, you should include some time of self-reflection and evaluation. Now, I'm not just talking about what did I do good yesterday, what did I do bad yesterday. It should include some time that you really try to understand what were the action, what were the motives behind my action. Like David said, clean hands and pure heart. Jonathan Edwards uh, was a great pastor in the 1700s, and he was, he was credited for starting what's called the Great Awakening. He wrote 70 resolutions that were his guiding principles for living a godly life. One of those resolutions was to resolve to dig deep to find the root of his sin. Number 24, resolved, whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, to trace it back till I come to the original cause. You see, he wanted to make sure that he stopped the actions, but he also wanted to make sure that he could prevent them from coming back. Now, one of the great benefits of self-examination is we get to see our value or our worth in compared to God's holiness. Whenever I do this, whenever I do self-examination and I see how wretched I am, but that God and his holiness created a way for me to have a personal relationship with me, I just, just get so welled up with joy I just want to worship him and do whatever he tells me to do. And that leads us to the last S, which is singing. In other words, worship him. I'm not just talking about singing songs like we do on the radio or on Spotify. I'm talking about actively worshiping God by using your voices. I love our worship team, but if we, if we aren't careful... We could just um, watch them and just be so enamored by what they're doing. And we could treat church like a concert. John 4 tells us that God is searching for true worshipers. 
And I get this impression that God is so omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he's looking for these people who are true worshipers. And that true worship comes from knowing how holy and sovereign God is, understanding how desperately we are in need of him, and then realizing that what God did for us so that we could spend time with him, that this great God so delights in having a relationship with us that he came down and he died to make a way for us to have a personal relationship. When we truly realize this, our gratitude for him just explodes in worship and praise to him. This type of worship is exactly what gets his attention. He stops searching and he comes down to dwell individually with us. Now for you guys who, who maybe haven't accepted Jesus into your life, what to do is pretty easy. You see, you just have to remember that you have unclean hands and that there's nothing that you can do to clean them and that Jesus came down and provided that degreasing agent for us, that his blood on the cross cleansed our sins. And his blood cleansing our sins gives us the opportunity now to enter into God's holiness, to have a personal relationship with him. His blood cleans us better than any bleach or any degreaser could. You just have to stop trying to clean yourself and accept Jesus' cleansing. It's that easy. I'm going to leave you with this song. It's my favorite song in the whole wide world. It, it sums up for everything that we've been talking about today. It reminds me of how great and glorious God is. It reminds me of what he did so that we could have a personal relationship. It reminds me that I have to actively respond and worship to him. So I ask that you join me now. Let's actively sing to our God. So I ask that you stand up and let's say, tell God how great thou art.
Jesus, you are great. Thank you for the things that you've impressed upon our hearts and our lives this morning as we've sought to worship you, as we've come into your presence with confession and our own shouts of acclamation for all that you've done in our lives. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 